be Matthew chapter 12. I want to begin by going way out on a limb here. It's my impression, I'm looking at the faces here, everyone present has been born. Go way out on a limb. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone. Personally, I was the youngest of six children, so either my parents were really satisfied with me or they just plain gave up. Um, as I grew up, I watched the other five who were all older than me and, and uh, who, especially one of them who will remain nameless, um, began to irritate me. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, I was beginning to doubt whether I really should have been born into that family or whether I actually was born into that family whether we were actually siblings at all. Maybe you've had a similar experience when you're really young. As I became a teenager, it was a temptation then to look around at other families and, and you'd see families that drove nicer cars and had better looking clothes and, and the like. And I kind of times thought, you know, why was I born into my family? Or at least why doesn't my family look more like that other family that's down the road? But the obvious answer is that I had no control over what family I was born into. In fact, my parents didn't have a whole lot of say in the matter either. They were stuck with me. I was stuck with them. They were stuck with us. And the fact is, we don't get to choose our natural family. We don't get any choice in the matter at all. And over time, we realize our siblings will remain our siblings. They will continue as our siblings. Siblings. And eventually, for the good of the family, everybody gets, learns to get along. You persevere. Uh, besides, if you did somehow assimilate into another family that you preferred, it wouldn't take long. You would probably discover they aren't quite as much fun as you thought, and you'd be conspiring to return to your old family somehow, make up and go back again. Folks, there are inexhaustible parallels of our human family to God's spiritual family, which we'll get to in a moment. But before I read to you from Matthew, we need to acknowledge that the family is something that we never outgrow. We never leave it behind. We never rid ourselves of them. So note in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus is not severing all relationships with His genetic family, his physical mother and his brothers. That is not his point at all. But Jesus does give a new definition of family in a way that had not previously been recognized. And coincidentally, I find this interesting, coincidentally he makes this statement when his natural family is approaching. When they're coming and wanting to speak to him, they're calling on him. And I will read from Matthew because he records slightly more of Jesus' statement than does Luke. So we'll just stay in Matthew today. I'll begin in verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will 
of my Father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. Now presumably this crowd that Jesus is speaking to is equally diverse as the crowd that we previously studied in the parable of the soils. For some reason we aren't sure why. Jesus' mother Mary, his brothers, they come, they want to speak to him. We do know a couple interesting facts. First off, at this time, John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that his brothers did not believe in him at this point. They did not believe in him. They did not trust in him. In fact, they don't actually seem to get on board until after the resurrection. Secondly, Scripture is clear that these are Jesus' half-brothers. Half-brothers who arrive with Mary, they're, they're not cousins, as has been suggested. They are natural children born of Mary and Joseph after the birth of Jesus. If you remember when the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, scripture, scripture tells us there, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son And he called his name Jesus. Mary remained a virgin only until after Jesus was born, after she gave birth to him. Further clarification of this blood relationship is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 57. There we hear the testimony of the townspeople of Nazareth. That was Jesus' original hometown where he grew up. They knew full well the history of the family and the history of Jesus. And as Jesus returned to them, they were resentful towards his return. And there we read in Matthew 13, Jesus came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then, they asked, did this man get all these things? And they took offense at Jesus. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. That's Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. The suggestion that these brothers and sisters are instead cousins, that that is really biblically indefensible. The Greek term for brothers, adelphos, indicates a male with same parents. That's what it suggests. Uh, Scholars have determined over time, looking at lots of ancient literature, the Bible itself, uh, that Adelphos has never been used to refer to cousins or any other distant relatives in ancient literature. Therefore, uh, the notion of a perpetual virginity of Mary, it's unfounded. And it's really unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Any notion that sex with Joseph would somehow defile Mary... That's just contrary to Scripture. Sexual intimacy within marriage is holy unto the Lord. It it is one of the ordained purposes, the design of marriage. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage. That's marriage. Uh, But Joseph did keep Mary a virgin until after Jesus was born. The point today, however is that when Jesus' mother and brothers arrive, they are his blood siblings, born through a common mother. 
Meanwhile, Jesus, we know, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit, grants him a different father. So these were his half-siblings. They are related by being born out of the same womb, but even being blood relatives to Jesus does not provide them default entry into the kingdom of God. In verse 47, someone said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered uh, the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And responding to the approach now of his familial kinship, his own people, it's now when Jesus offers a definition to a spiritual family. Good timing. Here comes my natural family. I'm going to give you a definition of a spiritual family or my spiritual family. And with the obvious diversity in this crowd, people of all different backgrounds, all different soils, I'm thankful that Matthew mentions that Jesus makes this statement while stretching his hands out toward his disciples. He's pointing this towards his disciples. Now that is a circle of disciples larger than just the twelve. Many who followed Jesus were called disciples, and Matthew doesn't say that Jesus stretched his hands out towards the twelve. He said he stretched his hands out to the disciples. So it's more than just the twelve. It's a larger group than just the twelve, but it excludes those who are just merely spectators. You get where I'm following? So it's not everybody he's speaking to, but those who are following him. So a statement doesn't apply to everyone present. Yet in verse 49, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, towards his disciples now, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Being a physical descendant of someone, just being birthed into a natural family, even Jesus' own family, does not automatically make you a member of God's kingdom. Paul assured in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That won't do it. Inheriting the kingdom of God, it's not achieved through good genetics. It's not achieved by being born into a great family. No matter who your mother or father might happen to be. You don't enter, enter God's kingdom by being physically born, but through being spiritually reborn. Born again. John 1.13 tells us children of God are born how? They are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how you're born into God's family by God. An earthly father or mother can't dictate to their children that they shall be Christians. They can pray for, they can witness, they can encourage, and they can ask God to intervene. But you can't forcibly make Christians. Have you ever found it interesting? I have. That Jesus did not choose his own brothers his half-brothers, as disciples. You know, he could have chosen anyone because he told the twelve, 
you did not choose me, but I chose you. Right? Now, did those disciples, those 12, have a legitimate experience of deciding to follow Jesus? They did. They had an experience of following Jesus at the prompting of God's Spirit. They dropped their nets and they followed Him. The experience was legitimate. They decided to follow Jesus. Lydia in Acts chapter 16 verse 14 also responded and followed Jesus. But not until God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken to her by Paul. God opened her heart to make the decision, though it was a genuine decision. John 6 verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So God could have opened the hearts of Jesus' half-brothers. He could have done that. And the family ministry could have been built around Jesus and his brothers. You know, dad could have been chairman. You know, brother could have been co-chairman. Junior could be president. The brothers could have filled up the whole board. Mom could have been the treasurer. In fact, that's how a lot of ministries look today, folks. That's how a lot of churches, let me put it that way, we're talking about churches today, uh, look today. Jesus seemingly thought that ordaining all of his brothers, all of his siblings and family into the ministry, it might have looked it might have looked a little bit like nepotism. Folks, I always use caution with Archie Bunker ministries. You know what I'm talking about? The churches that are all in the family? Yeah. Especially the large ones. I wouldn't propose Scripture prohibits them, but it should always be given a second look, especially the ones that have large satellite campuses, huge buildings, massive assets all in the family. You'd want to see published budgets. You've got to be cautious. Jesus didn't do that. Christ's church is not a family business. Think about it. How would you feel if my, tre- if my sister was a treasurer and my brother was the chairman and my wife was assistant pastor? You wouldn't feel really good about that, would you? Jesus recognized that. And by not choosing his brothers as apostles, he's making sure that his church doesn't look like the world. That would be the Rockefellers. That would be the Kennedys. That's a family business. It's a key difference between Israel and the church. There's no family monarchy in the church. That would have confused for people the path of how do I enter the family of God. In fact, it did cause confusion even in Israel. They had the monarchy. They, they knew they were the chosen people and still people were thinking that's enough. They were thinking if I were just a child, a genetic offspring of Abraham, that, that then I'm in. But even for them, it didn't work. You had to be of the same faith of Abraham in order to be one of his children. We learn from Romans chapter 4. The Davidic line preserved the path for Christ to come. It didn't preserve the entire nation of Israel. 
Many perished in the wilderness. No, uh, entry to the family of God is not through flesh and blood. Just as you are welcomed into your family by being born, you are welcomed into Christ's family by being reborn, by being born again, by the Spirit of God. Later on, after the church is established at Pentecost, at least two of Jesus' brothers, at least two, James and Jude, enter Christ's church by being born again. They come into the church, and they even write spirit-inspired letters to the church. We call them epistles. James and Jude write epistles. And James, who we read aloud earlier, that's the half-brother of Jesus, introduces himself in this way to his readers. Listen to this. James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, throughout the epistle, James refers not to Jesus as his brother, but the church as his brother's. Jesus is the Lord, the church are my brethren, they are my brothers and my sisters, James says. Jude, likewise, opens his letter by saying this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That's something, the humility, the humility. Do, do they unfurl their, their, their genetic heritage and roll out their credentials as a, as a reason that they are now in the church? Their relationship to Christ, is that what, uh, as a brother rather than a savior, does that bring them in the church? No. They realize there's no family birthright. There's no family birthright. No family in the church is superior to any other family. We all enter the same way. We are born again into it. The main point of this little passage Physical relationships do not regulate your entry into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's much more likely entry into Christ's spiritual family when you, when you decide to follow Jesus, if you want to put it that way. Once you are born again, once he has worked in your heart, it's much more likely that entry into the spiritual family is going to separate or divide you from your physical family. Many of us here have experienced just such a rejection. Just such a rejection. Jesus declared in Luke 12, verse 51, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In fact, we must be willing. We must be willing to, and prepared to be divided from our own family in order to enter Christ's family. We have to be willing. In Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciples. He cannot be my disciple. Here's a point. Christ must become the most important thing in your life. Christ has to be number one. 
Jesus is providing this as a comparison, folks. It's not a command to hate your father and your mother. In fact, we get clarity on that from Matthew chapter 10, where he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy, than, not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This must be a problem. This must be a problem with the church. Because th- this principle, it's repeated over and over in a diversity of ways. Many different ways. In the next chapter, Jesus will say to a man, follow me. How does a man respond? He says, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. What did Jesus say to him? Let the dead bury their own dead. You don't put that before me. To another in verse 61, he says, I will follow you, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. You can just imagine Jesus just shaking his head. Are you not getting the picture of your relationship with me has to usurp other relationships in your life? He has to be number one. One further warning, and this is a warning because we see it all the time. This putting Christ first in your life, putting your relationship with Him first, It'll run you into, um, it'll expose cults that will tell you, you have to sever all ties with your families. You have to sever your ties with your real family in order, to G- in order to join Jesus' spiritual family, which consists only of them. We're the only ones, they will say. And some will even use these same passages we're using today as evidence of how Jesus cuts ties with his old family. And they'll try to separate you from your genetic family artificially. No, that, that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. That's not what Jesus is asking for here. Don't succumb to that. Don't go off to college or move somewhere and get sucked into a group that will pull you away from your natural family artificially. No, what Jesus is saying, I need to be first. Everyone else in your relationship comes after me, even your father and mother after me if your experience is anything uh like mine and rita's we had some real tension with our parents my two parents and and her mother especially my two parents when we first became jesus freaks we did we we had some tension there we didn't realize at the time what direction that would turn going forward but we knew one thing our loyalty first was to christ that's number one He is number one for us. And eventually God displayed mercy towards my mom and dad and they came into the fold. And uh, God exposed their hearts as being in one faith with us. Experienced parents, her mother as well, not only of being our mother and our father and our mother, but also our brother and her sister. And that's about as sweet as it can get. When your own family is part of the family of God. Um, there remains with both of us a couple siblings that just don't want any part of it. They just don't want any part of it. But it, it kind of has to be like, if you remember back in school, when you're at the basketball tournaments, the regional tournaments, you have to have a loyalty first. You have to have a loyalty first. Your cheerleaders would lead you in the chant. Who's number one? 
We'd say, we are. Who's number two? They are. Remember, you point across the basketball court. We have to be number one. Everybody else has to be number two. Your relationship, that is, with Christ. Um, See the point? When you come into God's family, your loyalty has to shift. It shifts to Jesus, number one. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. The elect of Christ, his beloved, his chosen people, over a process and over a, a time of maturity, they, Christ and his church need to become number one. Number one in loyalty. Hopefully you don't have to separate from team number two. We don't want that. You want them on the same team, right? You don't want to separate from your family, but we realize that could occur. That potentially could happen. Um, I, I'm going to admit, this is difficult material. It's difficult for us to process through, but we need to process through it. We need to know who the family of God is. Take a look around. These are the people you will spend eternity with right here. Amongst you. The family of God. They are your brethren. We are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. When Jesus said by... This all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another or you love the brethren. John 13, 35. Folks, when when Jesus says that, by this they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another, that's us. That's us. That's how they will know that we belong to Christ, that we love the brethren. I'm sorry. I apologize for some of us. You know, we aren't always the easiest to get along with. We're all we got. This is us. This is his church. This are his, his beloved people. We are to love them. But just because you are born into a physic, physical family, just as you are born into a physical family, same way you're born, reborn into a spiritual family, into Christ's family, in the same way that you are stuck with your natural siblings, you're stuck with us. You're stuck with your spiritual siblings. And it's possible to enter Christ's family in an embryonic stage, a new believer all excited, and you get to meet your new siblings. Everything goes great for a season until you get to know us. Like I did getting to know my siblings. I'm like, I don't know if I like everything about this particular sibling. Possibly, possible to wonder, we can think, maybe I was born into the wrong family. You look around. Maybe this wasn't the right family. No, there's no other family. There's no other family. Um, I'd also like, you know, this this is a common experience with folks. It's not unique. You you, you get to a local church and you begin to embrace these relationships and then you get to know one another better and maybe it doesn't look quite as great as it did at the beginning. Most of the epistles in the New Testament, that is the letters, they're written to local churches most of whom were experiencing family problems, right? Most of them were. They were churches located in Laodicea and Sardis and Corinth and Thessalonica and Ephesus and these churches everywhere. Scripture is clear that Christ's family functions in local local churches. 
Local families, local assemblies, each having their own pastors, each having their own elders, each having their own deacons, each having their own hands and ears and feet together as one. The local church. In fact, Revelation chapter 2 implies that every church even has its own angel watching over it. We'll look at that interpretation on another day. But not only do we have us, we have an angel watching over us. A couple different ways you can interpret that, and we'll talk about that on another day. The point is, we're here together. We're the church. The Bible assures a Christian can't survive long outside a church. You've got to have God's people. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. 1 John 4.20 And we know that we passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. 1 John 3.14 Wow! Your relationship, my relationship with God is reflected by or through our relationship with God's people. The, the relationship with our church reveals our heart for Christ. We've been on this theme a little bit. We're going to wrap it up today. This is very important stuff. It's repeated throughout Scripture. These are just a few of the countless references demanding that we maintain and that we nourish ongoing relationships with one another. Not just a here and there relationship. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but encourage one another and let us consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the church. The late preacher Adrian Rogers, great preacher, miss him. But, but he referred to this as the fellowship test. He had several different tests. If you put them together, said one of them is a fellowship test. Are you in fellowship with a local church? If you are, no guarantee you're a Christian. But if you're not, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. Unbelievers can creep into the church. It's harder for uh, believers to not be in a church. You long for that relationship with others who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Um, Christians just can't survive for long out on their own. They starve. They starve alone. In reference to the local body or church, as, as already stated, we don't get to choose our family. We don't get to choose our family. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18 states, get this, that God has placed the members each one of them in the body just as he desired. Get that. Just as he desired. And he does it for our mutual edification and our multiplication. God has gifted each of us here in a particular way in order to nourish the body. Nourish his body. Not just the body. It's his body that he loves. You have a gifting and you have a purpose. Folks, I was thinking about that, this just this morning. People want to have a purpose in life. You've been gifted by God to, to nourish and, and edify the flock of God. That's why He has us here together. What more purpose is there in life? Finally, there remain only two 
chief applications. I'd like to amplify concerning our spiritual family before we depart. First one is, Jesus says, brothers and sisters, hear the word of God and do it. That means from our our lesson back in verse 15, they're what? They're good soil. They are good soil. They receive the word and they bear fruit with perseverance. They hear the word of God and they do it. This is a restatement by Christ, who my brother and sisters are. There were four categories of soil. And we're never told to assess what kind of soil that we're sowing into. This is the reason the sower indiscriminately wastes so much seed. Remember we talked about that? That no farmer would waste the amount of seed that the sower in the parable does on the rocky soil and by the beaten path and among the thorns. No farmer in North Dakota would do that. But God does. Unlike a real farmer, we can never exhaust the Word of God. We can never run out of seed. We can continually scatter and never expire our reserve. Our obligation is to scatter. We share the Word of God. We're we're not to assess who appears rocky and who looks like they're thorny. That's not our job. That's not our role. We, We scatter, folks. We scatter abundantly. We scatter wastefully. We'll never exhaust the Word of God. If the soil reacts or responds especially hard or very resentful, we're not obligated to cast our pearls before the swine, surely. But typically, the soils we looked at, it takes time for them to be revealed what type of soil they are after we have sowed with them. It isn't for a period of time until after you've sowed the seed, whether you learn whether it's good soil or thorny soil or rocky soil. The Word will reveal what kind of soil it is. I'm glad we don't have to assess. I'm glad we're told not to assess, but just to scatter the seed. And and the reality is, we don't know who the Holy Spirit has prepared for the Word. We don't know their heart when we walk up to a person. We don't get to choose our family. We don't get to choose our family. There's a substantial reason. Talked about this in men's group Wednesday night. There's a substantial reason we find the numerous whosoever will clauses throughout Scripture. Laced throughout Scripture, right? Different places, especially the New Testament. Whosoever will, or whosoever uh, comes, doesn't suggest that God is ignorant of who will come. It doesn't suggest God doesn't know who will and who won't trust in Jesus. That would be ridiculous, folks. He has written their name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Whosoever also doesn't suggest God doesn't choose. The whosoever wills are placed throughout the Bible to ensure that we don't choose. Because in our sinful flesh, we'd love to usurp God's role. We'd love to be sovereign in choosing. We, we'd, we'd probably run into people and say, well, hello, Mr. Gold Rings and beautiful clothing. You know, we've been waiting for you a while. We have a special seat just for you right here. Did the early church have a problem with that? 
The sin of partiality. That's what we're warned against. You know it was Jesus' half-brother James who wrote that? There won't be anyone partial. Here we got the half-brother of James or of Jesus saying that. No partiality. Whosoever is there to remind us we don't choose. It's there to remind us we don't withhold the gospel from anyone, no matter what they look like. Their appearance, how poor they might look, how scroungy they might look, how nice they might look. We don't withhold it from them either. You ever run into that? It's like, well, they just look like they're a little too for a nose in the air for me to share. No. We share. We share with everyone. Because if we're not conditioned by Scripture to recognize that, that God can open anyone's heart, just as He did with Lydia, she's not an anomaly, you know. That's not an anomaly that, she, that God opened her heart. That's the way it works. If we're not conditioned to know that God can work, even with our own children, even with our parents who we pray for, if we didn't realize that, why would we pray? If God didn't have the power to intervene. How futile prayer would be in such a theology. But we pray. If we didn't know this, we would resist praying for and witnessing two persons such as Saul of Tarsus. We'd look at him and say, no, God would never want him. In fact, even after being summoned by God, Ananias, he resisted going to Saul. Essentially, he said, you know, Lord, Lord, do you know who this guy is? No. What did God say? The Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. It's Acts 9, verse 15. Do you remember the first word that Ananias used to describe Saul after Ananias laid hands on him? Brother Saul! Isn't that great? The first word used to describe Saul of Tarsus. One who was persecuting the church and dragging away men and women in chains to prison. Now he's a brother. That's amazing. That's amazing. Left to ourselves, we would have determined, yeah, God doesn't probably want Saul. He, he probably doesn't want that politician. Yeah, that guy, he looks a little rough, probably wouldn't. Nah, he wouldn't want him either. Oh, you have a history? Nah, no, God probably wouldn't want you. The whosoever will clauses prevent that mentality. They prevent that mentality. In fact, while referencing kings and all who are in authority, 1 Timothy chapter 2, while referencing them, at that time it was Nero, if you remember, someone that nobody would think God would want. Scripture ensures us even there we can't conclude that God wouldn't want such a person. The church functions with a mentality, that scripture says, that God desires all men to be saved. That's our attitude. That's our approach. We go out, we don't choose. We don't choose who the family is. We're indiscriminate. Describing the invisible Holy Spirit as a sovereign wind who rebirths people into God's family, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, meaning you hear evidence. But you do not know where it is coming or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
No exclusions there. It's everyone is born that way. We don't know where the Holy Spirit's going or where it's coming. We just scatter. That's what we do is scatter. Second application. Since we are born together into Jesus' spiritual family, and we don't have any say in the matter, we love everyone else that God has placed into the spiritual family. We're all baptized by one spirit into this family. Do we love one another because our brothers and sisters are flawless? No. We love because he first loved us. The basis of our love toward the brethren, even the difficult ones, is that Jesus loved him or her enough that he bled and he died for that person's sins. That is love, folks. How can we not love when Christ has shown so much love for that brother and sister in Christ? How could we not love? You thought, it's easy to make this mistake, you thought maybe the we love because He first loved us is a a general love, you know, we all just kind of feel the love. That was more like the 60s, I guess. That's not what it's talking about. It's not just a general, indec- you know, indecisive type of love. The command is given in reference to your local church, the brethren. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, see we're talking about the brethren again, not, not genetic families. If he says, says, I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is completely regarding our, our attitude towards the spiritual family. Love for one another. And then it overflows outside through the gospel. Um, the one who says, I love God, can't tolerate the people of God, can't tolerate going to church, doesn't want to be in any church anywhere, they're a liar. They're a liar. We embrace, we endure. Regardless of your current situation, folks, if you're here, you might be a visitor from out of town one time you're here today. You might be going back to your home church next week. You might be someone who recently moved to Port St. Lucie. You might be you know, looking at different churches and other things. You might be someone who's been here a while. Um, you might land somewhere else. That is fine. We've never claimed to be the only Christian church in town. But when you land... I hope you land, folks. And I hope you love. And I hope you endure and embrace your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the family that we'll spend eternity with. If you haven't already, if it hasn't previously occurred to you what this love is, I suggest we all begin loving more today. There's a season, I'll wrap up with this, um, in church that behaves somewhat Somewhat like a marriage. After the honeymoon come two or five years of strained adjustment. Because you discover your spouse has, well, bad breath in the morning. Rita's a dental hygienist and she says everybody has the same bad breath. I mean, everybody, everybody. And in a typical marriage, this is standard marriage now, the first five years are the most difficult. The most difficult time of adjustment, you begin to learn about the one you've married. Excluding anything nefarious in in circumstances, the typical marriage that fails, fails in the first five years. 
But once you pass the five years, once you surpass that, learn to adjust and even enjoy differences, the chances your marriage will endure over the long haul, it leaps exponentially. Endure where you are. Um, It's because we condition ourselves over time to love people and embrace them even in spite of differences. Every part of the nation suffers uniquely. We're in South Florida, folks. We're in South Florida. Churches must withstand the dynamics of transience. People come in from out of town. They move here for retirement. They move here for, for uh, uh, starting a new life. They relocate from all over the place. Most of us here are from somewhere else, except for probably Russell Laux. He, he's from here. There's a few of you. Most of us here came from somewhere else. We have relocated. We're transplants. We're new. And, and people start stop, uh, shopping churches, and, and the hazard is they never stop. Hazard is they never stop. One or two years here, one or two years there, not enough time to really get to know people, not enough time to really overcome differences, not enough time to learn the life stories or the names of one another's children. It's possible to get feelings hurt for one reason or another. And rather than buckle down, our American spirit is to cut and flee, right? Independence. And rather than persevering and passing on into a season of wedded bliss, typically people will begin to search for another church relationship where they are convinced that the breath doesn't stink. And it's possible in Florida um, to spend 15 years, folks, listen close. It is possible. Christ's church is so important. That's why I bring this up. It's possible anywhere in America to spend 15 years and you never really get to know or love anybody. You don't get to know others well enough to feel comfortable visiting them in the hospital. And they never get to know you well enough to come and visit you when you're ill. You don't get comfortable enough to show show up at their home with a meal. They never visit you either. You don't receive a get well card because... You've never sent one. It's possible to spend life progressively growing more isolated and alone. You never bother to attend anyone's funeral because you never really got to know them. And nobody attends yours. That's the hazard, folks, that we need to acknowledge and overcome. That's not the way it's supposed to occur in a family. I know it's hard being a new member of a family, of a body. Rita and I faced challenges. We came here the first year or two was hard. You, some relationships come very quick and easy. Other relationships don't. Sometimes it's difficult to know whether someone even wants you to visit them in the hospital. Some things you just don't know until enough time comes and you overcome but it will be four years now, the end of this month, and incrementally, over time, our relationships have blossomed with our sisters and brothers in Christ. It's grown much sweeter. Um, And I've heard, just as I've heard, from a number of you here, a number of you here, who have been faithful over the years, Rita and I now can't imagine ourselves anywhere else. We love our brethren. And I know you do as well. Um, 
We experienced, uh, we all experienced some strain with our genetic brothers, our genetic sisters, over our devotion to Christ. Think just for a moment about what most lonely people in the world, most who feel alone, think what they would sacrifice to obtain just 50 or maybe even 150 people who they have learned to enjoy and who in return love them like a brother. What would people give for that? Here we are. And we're together. Let's continue to grow one to another. Let's pray.